I'm Steve Head. This is Captive Eye, formerly known as the Diabolique webcast. All the goodness, all the greatness, still here, just a different title. On this episode, we're going to talk about Michael Powell's 1962 film, Peeping Tom. And joining me to do so, of course, is David Kleiler and Jean-Paul Ouellette. David's a former film professor at Babson College and former artistic director of the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts. And JP is a writer, producer, director who, among other things, was the script supervisor on Tippi Hedren's film Roar, which I imagine was quite the task. But anyway, let's get right to it. Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. Look out. Look out. Look out! Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? For Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. We are here to talk about Michael Powell's 1960 film, Peeping Tom. Oh, the film that ended Michael Powell's career. I mean, to be the career of one of the greatest filmmakers in British history. It's, it's well, amazing. Nothing. Didn't the, completely. He still did some work afterwards. Oh, some least. work, yes, but nobody went to see it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing to me that um, one film ruined a director's career, effectively made him unemployable. In some way, I find it kind of find that hard to believe that they would they would take all of his filmography prior to that and say, forget it. You're no longer, uh, you know, well, I think I think they were separating the fact that this was Powell alone as opposed to Powell and Pressburger, which had been the team prior to this film. And, I, you know, I'm not sure if it's the critics who did it. Obviously, it's financiers and the public. Yeah, that's true. Because Though I'm think- surprised that this would be a film that would have that much of an effect. Here's this film. It's a psychological thriller, uh, a little bit on the uh, possibly tawdry side. I'm sure. Uh, sure. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand, uh, it came out at a period in time when there was a, a definite shift in the kinds of films that were being made in England. Uh, in the uh, it comes after the kitchen sink brand of realistic films with uh-huh. John Osborne, based on John Osborne plays and things like that. Uh, this came the films that Tony Richardson made like uh, mm. Look Back in Anger and uh, Loneliness with a Long Distance Runner, all gritty black and white films. And this is anything but, there's a lot of grittiness, but it's anything but black and white. Mm-hmm. And so it, was, it came out sort of against the grain uh, in multiple ways. And you know, I guess there could be elements of tastelessness. Would this be the first time a film put the audience in the point of view of the killer? Well, that's that's the claim that this is the first film that did it. Oddly enough, six months later, Psycho would come out and spend <laughs> a couple of moments doing it. Yeah, but this really is the first time that the audience was the killer. 
And that, in a sense, was going over the line. Well, I think that's exact. That's the one thing that upset the the British public. Hmm. That that it was. I'm watching a killing. I'm behind the killer. Which I think is part of the reason for this, why the film has such a good reputation. Uh, because uh, the whole idea. I've always thought that films were, you know, it's either a window on the world or it's a mirror of reality. In this mm-hmm. case, it's a window on the world, but again, we're looking at ourselves because of the point of view work that goes on film. When the camera takes the point of view of the killer or a character, and implicit in the choice of that technique, implicit is that we identify with the person through whose eyes we're seeing. Now, we've hmm. seen that thing like in the Freddy film, not the Freddy films, but the uh, the Jason films, the Friday the 13th films. I don't think I've ever felt identified with Jason. It's interesting. But, I mean, it's like having empathy for the monster. But if you go way back, it's like, you know, we had empathy for Frankenstein, you know. Uh, well, actually, Frankenstein is more of a victim than than this killer. I mean, this is a killer. This is yeah. a guy who does stab women to death, mm-hmm. um, which Frankenstein accidentally kills somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a completely different Yeah, story, but, but you know. my point being that, you know, <coughs> you have, uh, you know, some feelings for the bad guy. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and I, that's intentional here. Absolutely. They want you to feel... That he, because of his, the way he grew up, is forced into this strange position, you know, and we, we have a sympathy. So he was a scientist. What kind of a scientist, Mark? Biologist. What was he trying to do to you? Mark, what was he trying to do to you? Watch me grow up. He wanted a record of a growing child. Complete. In every detail. Such a thing were possible. And he tried to make it possible by training a camera on me at all times. I never knew the whole of my childhood, one moment's privacy. And those lights in your eyes and that thing? He was interested in the reactions of the nervous system to... to fear. Fear? Fear. Especially fear in children and how they react to it. I think he learned a lot from me. I'd wake up sometimes screaming. He'd be there taking notes and pictures. And I'm sure good came of it for some people. He was brilliant. A scientist drops a lizard onto a child's bed and good comes of it? We kind of feel that because of Anna Massey's character, you sort of want everything to work out for her. She seems like a real, real delicate person who's very trusting. And, mm-hmm. and you, uh, you know, I think the killer sees that in her. In other words, anybody else is fair game except for her. But there's something about her. There's something about this where you, where you think like the guy is in some way going to be redeemable. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously not. I mean, it's a tragedy. Right. Well, obviously, yes, the the whole dichotomy is that here he is a guy who hasn't been able to, to meet women and kills them. And then he <laughs> meets a woman and now it's way too late. It's all over. It cannot happen. Yeah. Even though had this happened earlier, it might have changed his life. Yeah. You know, so it is in that way tragic. He, he is a victim in a way, though, because he was messed up in the beginning by his father. Oh, definitely. No, he's yeah. definitely a victim. And that's and that's an intentional thing from the filmmakers mm-hmm. to the audience to f- that you, they want you to feel sympathy. Yeah. 
But in feeling sympathy for them, for him, it also drags you into his madness, his sickness, mm. as we stalk, you know, a prostitute down the street. Uh, David, do you recall when the film was released in 62? Actually, no. Did it, was, it, it was in yet? May. It was released in May. Six months later, Psycho came out. And uh, no. And I don't remember its reputation then at all in the United States. And uh, and so Apparently it, it was wasn't until Martin Scorsese you know, did this kind of thing uh, that this film deserves to be seen. Yeah. And, of course, we know the connection there of Thelma's Schoonmacher by that time had be, who had married uh, uh, to uh, uh, Powell. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd already, she'd already become Scorsese's editor. Yeah. And of course, she and Scorsese met in the making of the documentary Woodstock. And oh, so, yeah. And so, uh, so there was this real uh, uh, bond. And um, so I'm glad that you know, Scorsese's done those things. I mean, he, he's been in re- forgetting films restored, even a film that I think sort of a turkey, El Cid with Charlton Heston and uh, <laughs> and El. Hey, it's it's Rennes. Rennes. But he, he sort of uh, says love that kind of thing, but it's kind of interesting like this film, which is, in some ways, it's a film for filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, it is. You know, and even for cinephiles, it's kind of fascinating to watch. The references are kind of, you know, mm-hmm. interesting. But I think it is a meditation on what it means to make a film. The very things that are there, that the idea of uh, the audience's complicity in what it is we see on the screen. We want to see that. Uh, and it's an awareness of the kind of voyeurism that we all yeah. have when we go to the movies. And uh, I don't actually. There's one thing I think you should have pushed that a little bit farther. It would have been more repulsive, perhaps. But I think you, I uh, uh, would have loved that. But I think there is a kind of a way. Of, I think it's a very metaphysical film yeah. uh, in that. And so the tricks it plays with the uh, or the things about the audience psychology. I would like to know more about what. I mean, I think we talked before. That it comes from outside the material there, but what attracted Powell to making this film? Yeah, I and, wondered the same thing too. And the thing is, clearly there are things there that no matter what the script was of somebody he got from somebody, uh, the, the things that are remarkable about the film is what he does as a director. Mm-hmm. Well, it may be that he he had an influence because they actually in the credits the the screenwriter has original story and then a screenplay, um, yeah. and so it's very possible that he developed the story with Powell. He'd he'd already been around for for a while as a screenwriter. Yeah, he was a uh, um, cryptographer. Cryptographer, that's the word I was looking yeah. for. Very good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah during the war. Yeah. And then he, uh, after the war, he had this other career as a um, novelist, playwright, novelist. and screenwriter. I think, I think his name was Lawrence Marks. <clears throat> yes, it was. Or Leonard. Either Lawrence. Leonard or Lawrence. Yeah, I guess, you know, Powell just fell in love with the story idea and the script. Apparently, the guy who wrote it was like a mastermind. You know? Well, he had been yes, he had been the head of a cryptography division in World War II at the age of twenty. So he must have been a bright young man. Uh, Leo Marx. Yeah, Leo, Leo Marx. Uh, David, yeah. you're, you're mentioning Scorsese. It, it reminded me of um, a quote of his where he compared Peeping Tom to of all films. You know, most people would say obviously there's a comparison that can be made to Psycho, but. Scorsese compared it to Eight and a Half, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing here, and he said that if something to the effect that if you watch Eight and a Half, and you watch Peeping Tom, 
you'll learn everything you need to know there is about the, the filmmaking. Being a director. Uh, being a, yeah, being a, being a filmmaker. In other words, Eight and a Half has all the uh, the parties and the glitz. And then Peeping Tom is the other side, the dark side, where you know the director is kind of a voyeur, where everybody kind of is. They have this... But both films deal with the psychology of what it is to be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the... Uh, uh, there is that comparison. Yes, you have. They can be companion pieces. Yeah, it's not like say the bad and the beautiful or films like or even Day for Night, mm. but uh, where Truffaut yeah, of course plays film. the director in Day for Night. I mean, that's why I do think that with the Powell thing, what does it mean to be a filmmaker? Because we have a filmmaker being portrayed in this film. The guy's, well, I, th- I think obsession is one of the elements. And of course, it's a documentary he's making, right? Yeah. As opposed to the, um, the, the feature that's going alongside him. Yeah. And the con- the implications, I'm sure Powell thought them, as a filmmaker, he's going to film his own death. Mm-hmm. I know he wasn't thinking of this. It got to be the death of his career, uh, but I don't <laughs> think it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. But it's interesting, it's interesting to think about that. In all kinds of films, there's a kind of a way, there's a triumph in death. And... Um, I mean, well, then in this case, I guess he was successful. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, Martin Scorsese pulled it from the grave then. But, uh, uh, but no, it, it is, it, I think psychologically, this is a fascinating film. Mm. And I think, yeah, and you have to take into account sort of the metaphysics of, of you know, what it is to be a filmmaker, what it is to, you know, what is a film, uh, and what's the act of filming. I mean, and I think the idea is more than just simply, oh, we are all voyeurs. I mean, we, we are complicit here. We want to see this, and we don't want to see it. What would frighten me to death? Oh, is that the mood for me, Mark? Imagine. Someone coming towards you. Who wants to kill you. Regardless of consequences. A madman? Yes. But he knows it. And you don't. And just to kill you isn't enough for him. But how would he frighten me? Stay there, Biff. You just tried. I can't imagine what you've thought of. Imagine this would be one of his weapons. That? Yes. That. Mark! Yes, that would be frightening. There's something else. Well, what is it? There's also the uh, psychological connection here between the son and the father, which is which is very messed up. Which, of course, the father's played by Powell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that mean anything? Uh, yeah, I kind of wonder. <laughs> and yeah. 
but as I'm sure he, he had he, he had to be aware of it. Mm. I mean, these implications are, you know, are, are you know they're not just reading things into them; they're there. Yeah. And no, this is quite intentional. This is well thought out, prepared. The psychology is all very, yeah. you know. I mean, for as simple one that fascinated me was that the, the difference between the two actresses. Animacy well, there's well, there's and, three. Uh, there's actually three actresses, but you have um, the main actress from the feature film, who is a nightmare. She's a lunatic. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have the uh, pinup girl, mm -hmm. who's absolutely the actress is a scene stealer. I mean, she's mm -hmm. magnificent, but they're so opposite characters, right. and one's one's real, and one's the fiction of, of film, mm -hmm. and one's supposedly sleazy and the other one supposedly pure as far as you know being an actress you know what i think is also interesting you, you mentioned the the actress in the film from the director of that film in the movie's perspective he's trying to get a reaction out of her that he can't get just like uh the killer here mm -hmm. is trying to get a reaction out of his victims that he can't get right it's like it's like he's he's trying to direct life but it's not happening you know. But he's also trying to direct a moment his father was searching for. Yeah. I mean, he's hunting for something that his father did this to him. Did his father ever see it? And here he's looking for it by getting it, evoking it from somebody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally hunting for his own terror. It's fascinating. I think his father wanted to get him really close to death. And that's why he filmed the kid visiting his mother for the last time. Right. Or his dead mother in bed. Right. Oh, absolutely. He was looking for high emotion. Hmm. And obviously a woman looking at a spike about to enter her body is high emotion. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did Powell and Pressburger have a collection of actors that they typically worked with in their films? I don't know. Um, because the lady who was murdered on the set was also um, yeah, the, no, uh, the sure. Yeah, Wire yeah. Shearer was the red shoes. The red I shoes. mean, he, but these were also people. Remember, England's a smaller place than we, than the U.S. as far as a filmmaking community. So, the Pressburger and and uh, Powell, yes, they mm. there was a small talented pool that everybody was working from. Mm. So, but I mean, once again, he knew Powell had worked with many of these people and obviously reused them. Mm -hmm. Um, so, David, when was the first time you saw, you uh, got to see the film? In the Not 80s, until Scorsese um, uh, uh, resurrected it. Uh, uh, I'd heard about the film, but again, it wasn't something I, you know, I, uh, I'd heard about the film because I happened to like that kind of film. Yeah. But I didn't see it until probably around 1979, 1980, mm -hmm. uh, when a woman who, was, who founded a film festival in Boston, she brought it, uh, Peeping Tom, to... Uh, she started a book of theater doesn't exist anymore called the uh, the Austin Cinema, oh, right. and she had a chance to do it. And she her her lead off film to set the tone. She didn't last very long. Her lead off uh, film was uh, uh, Peeping Tom, hmm. setting the tone for what kinds of films we'd see under her stewardship. Yeah. Well, I did the same thing when I started off a film series on Martha's Vineyard. My leading my first film was Roman Polanski's The Tenant. <laughs> set the tone for the kind of things that I would uh, I would show, and and I didn't. Well, I did build a loyal following, but uh, but mm. yeah, but yeah, I don't think I don't think anybody in America saw it before seventy nine eighty. I mean, it was shot. It was shown originally, yeah. In and this is the Scorsese story was it was shown in one theater in New York, 
Yeah. And it was in like Hell's Kitchen where nobody, even the students weren't going. Yeah. So it was shown for a short period of time, but film people heard about it and were fascinated by it, but didn't get to see it. So that when the small, I forgot the name of the, the distributor, small distributor wanted to bring it back to the U.S. Yeah. And they were tight on cash and they started asking filmmakers if, you know, they would help. And Scorsese put up $5,000 to help yeah. with prints and advertising. You and know what's interesting though is with a film like that and um, with a bunch of cinephiles, you know, at that time, even for me in the 80s, there were films that you heard about but you never got the chance to see. Mm. There were there were like these rumors of deleted scenes, these rumors of movies that, you know, you never got to see. Then that changed, you know, with the online distribution and Netflix and, you know, well, basically that changed with VHS. Right. Well, VHS changed the world, definitely. You know, but I I remember the days of not being able to see uh, Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Hmm. Or, uh, you know, if you missed the first run of Logan's Run or The Exorcist, you couldn't see it again until it, it played again. So, you know, those movies held a Yeah, no, a that's, that, that's sort of a, a, some of them were almost missing, <laughs> yeah. that desperation to see it. Do you recall, it. just, uh, just a, a tangent, do you recall any films that you'd wanted to see for a long time that you weren't able to see? Sargasso Manuscript. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And that's, uh, I finally got a chance to see it at the Harvard Film Archive. Uh, where it's in their permanent collection, but it's one of those legendary films. Yeah. Every place I would show movies, or I had a suggestion list, Sargasso Manuscript <laughs> always cropped up. Yeah. And, you know, in, in uh, at my age, I have this bucket list of films that I've never seen, and that I'm, I'm checking them off one by one now. I mean, mm-hmm. some of them you can see, like Godard's Pierre Lefou, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. Sargasso Manuscript. Uh, that reminds me, I wanted to see Alphaville for the longest time, and I couldn't. I, I didn't see the film until the God, the late eighties on video. Well, there were a lot. Yeah, in America, America, it was very hard to see. If you didn't get to see it in the first release, European films were almost impossible to see again. Yeah, I mean, luckily, growing up in Boston, I mean, television. There was a television channel in Boston from high, high school on that movie after movie all day, twenty four hours was movies. So, yeah. I mean, most films were available, but not the foreign films. Yeah. Well, and also not the one, nothing risque, unless you're watching GPH. The, in the um, old days. Um, uh, but uh, public broadcasting had the James film collection, so you could see. I, mean, I think it's interesting when I uh, first saw La Strada, I think it was on television and it was dubbed. Mm-hmm. So you had that weird thing that goes on in a Fellini movie that he already had dubs his actors. Then you had somebody else dubbing. <laughs> the, he actually had already dubbed. Mm. So you have. On screen, Richard Basehart saying goodbye. What comes out is chow. And then you have somebody else you know, like, like, what? I, I do remember seeing a late night screening of The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which was a strange one. And that was like in the AM. That's definitely Powell from a different era. I mean, definitely. Yeah. And that's, I have a feeling that's the big problem with this film was that he had just done a whole series of, you know, glorious World War II movies. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly this comes out of nowhere and just shocks people. Yeah. That and and once again it wasn't you know it wasn't the classy Pressburger, you know Powell style. Like I you know I love those stories about films that just weren't appreciated in their time. And I, I'm just recalling something else. I re- I recall that the distributor of the film in in Britain, uh, they typically used American international pictures to distribute their stuff in the U.S. and they wouldn't take Peeping Tom. So they had to go to some other company whose name I don't, right. I don't recall, and it was there in the company's 
list of films that was their very worst performer. Because mm. so, <laughs> all those Pressburger or Palma, they used to have those that I used to love. I grew up on these films where it was, I think it was J. Arthur Rank. Yeah. And you yeah. had the guy banging the gong right. uh, at the beginning. And that you knew yeah. you were going to see a quality film when that gong ba- uh, 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 got banged. Yeah. And, of course, yeah. again, around this time, filmmaking in England was was shifting. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that's why Peeping Tom not only came out of nowhere in Powell's career, but it also came, it just didn't fit in with anything else that was going on. Yeah. Do you, do you think that this was perhaps the first slasher film? Seeing as though it came out some months before, <laughs> no. before Psycho? It may have been the first whole homegrown, fully English one, but definitely not the first slasher. Yeah. Yeah, the, it's kind of interesting. I just see, saw a film a few months ago, a 1942 American film, but uh, it's an English film, The Lodger, which, mm-hmm. of course, in some ways is a remake of Hitchcock's Lodger from 1927, right. mm-hmm. which is the Jack the Ripper story. Mm-hmm. And but it is interesting. He's a lodger. He being suspicious of, and he kills actresses. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have somebody there who's suspicious of him. The, the plot of Peeping Tom is just so incredibly close to this. It's Laird Krager, I think, plays the lodger, mm-hmm. and George Sanders, and uh, who was it? The one uh, Merle Oberon plays the actress oh, li- wow. there, and we know she's going to be in trouble. It's, it's a, so the plot line is so similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole setup is so, in, and there is the 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 Meryl O'Brien's mother is the one to be suspicious of who's this guy. Mm-hmm. We have that here, mm-hmm. and where mm-hmm. what I like about what Paolo he carries, we have a plot that I know, you know, I've seen, but it's what he does with the camera and the use of the camera, even the fact that the woman who's in in um, uh, Peeping Tom, who's suspicious, is blind. I mean, there are all kinds of ways this film just works on a, on a metaphysical level. Uh-huh. Yeah, and and JP had mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago when we watched it uh, that the director in the movie, who's directing the um, um, the feature film, uh, yeah, the feature film, is in real life blind himself. Right. So well, it's just a, a, assuming that many people knew that at the time the uh, movie was being made, uh, sort of an in joke. There's lots of elements of the film which are so carefully placed, like the blind, yeah, yeah, um, like the actresses. I mean that that he's obviously sat down and. and this is well plotted. This is mm. well inten- this the, every intention is there. The, the trick about the difference between it and Jack the Ripper is Jack the Ripper is never given a backstory, a path. Mm. Right. And this one's I mean, the whole the film carefully, carefully unwraps our killer's past. I mean, mm. we're in the room we're in the house where he grew up, where we see the rooms where people died. Mm-hmm. Um we see the lab where his father, you know, and we see the cameras that filmed him as a child and we see the footage of him as a child. I mean, so this is, I mean, as far as psychology, this is a heavy psychology story. Mark, what a beautiful little boy. Who is he? Me. Of course it is. Then who took this film? My father. What a wonderful idea. You'll be able to show it to your own children. You must have had a bad dream. What was the light in your eye? Camera, I suppose. Whatever are you after? 
naughty boy. I hope you were spanked. Mark, what a strange thing for your father to photograph. Switch it off? No. No. This isn't some sort of a joke, is it? No, Helen. It's interesting that Anna Massey's character becomes the voyeur of those films. And she says to him at one point, I want to be told about what I'm seeing. This is very disturbing to me. As if when the film starts, we're in the point of view of the killer and we don't quite know what's going to happen, but something, you know, horrible. I love the scene. Um, uh, and it's, there are so many scenes that are magnificently shot. I just wish, I think the film's overall uneven, but it's, um, but I love that scene where she turns on the projector in his studio, whatever. Yeah. And we watch the look of horror on her face. And again, not unlike what we wanted, wanted to see what uh, Tony Perkins sees when he looks at through the people. Mm. We want to, we want to see, What's causing her to be the look of horror, yeah. and that whole way we I, I kept on expecting it. All of a sudden, he's going to cut to what's on the screen, but the point of the scene is her and yeah. our desire to see what she's yeah, seeing. Sure. It's a two-way. It's a brilliantly. That's a beautifully done scene. But mm -hmm. also, your desire to see what's on the screen is also voyeuristic. That you want to see yes. what's on the screen and I think shows the that you're really a voyeur. We are all keeping talks. So do the justifies. The reaction that we're watching, right? Uh, I think that's um, yeah. No, there's really creepy things about this movie as far as be watching it. The irony of it is, is I think this is a film that's made by somebody that really loves filmmaking, but it has this, you know, the, of course the uh, the irony of it being a real, real dark uh, undertone to the film. Yeah, no, he definitely yeah. he definitely throws filmmaking the traditional idea of filmmaking on its ear mm. in this for the effect of horror. Yeah. I, lo I love the, the reference to sight and sound uh, when he's asked when, when the, when the killer is asked who he's writing for, because he comes back to the scene of the crime at the beginning of the movie. Right. And, and a pedestrian ask, asks him, who's he with, you know, because he thinks he's with the news organization. He says the observer, mm. you know, I mean, there's, there's there, the, the, the little jokes like that are, uh, Right, you know, oh, quite definitely. amusing in the film. Also, it's it's in Technicolor too. It looks, you know, uh, beautiful. Was this, was this Technicolor? Yeah, I believe it was a Technicolor yeah. film. Really, yeah. oddly yeah. enough, this, the the print that we saw didn't look like Technicolor. Mm. As far as you know, but then again, once again, it's it's a grittier movie mm. than you one thinks of as a Technicolor film. Yeah, it doesn't have the glossiness, but it was you know what Powell did do on his own independently of Pressburger was maintained his obsession with the color red. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the lipstick uh, didn't splatter as much black. I want to get blood on, you know, when, when the knife, talk about my voyeurism. Not, Let's go one really step further and have the, when, when the camera functions, have the have blood splatter yeah. on the camera lens. That mm -hmm. would have been a nice touch. Yeah. It's a little sick, but that's fine. I think, well, the, the weird thing was he, he was holding back a little bit, but he still scared the hell out of the audience yeah. know, at the time. I mean, yeah. it was, People were horrified. So I think horrified as opposed to scared. I think the idea he's not going to go that far, is he? You keep on, you mm -hmm. know, and then he does go that far. Mm -hmm. That's really the horrific thing. You do. I don't know. Maybe in the scene where what's her name's looking, you know, looking at the things, you, know, you begin to fear for her. 
Yeah. Um, and, or the heroine of the yeah, film. Yes. Yeah, so looking at his uh, films. Helen. Yeah. And uh, Best Magnificent Film Scene. Uh, I think all in all, it's a more violent film than Psycho. Yeah, mm. probably. But And also more risque. Because um, in the British version of the film, which ultimately I believe may be the version that Criterion released on DVD, I'm not sure. The model who um, uh, Mark photographs mm. at the beginning of the film, she is actually nude at one point. Right. Which the British censor said, this has to go f- if you want to see this publicly. Right. That actress yeah. was the wife of George Harrison Marks. Oh, yeah, the, George Harrison The famous uh, photographer, film, uh, blue ph- filmmaker of, of Britain. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's, she steals the screen while she's there. Yeah. And, and her death to me was one of the more horrifying ones because I really did like her. But that also reminds me of the, the wonderful contrast and probably one of the most horrific moments of the film, which is when she introduces the second oh, model right. there yeah. and who, turn, who suddenly turns. She's stunningly beautiful until she turns her face to our hero or villain um, and shows the horrific disfigurement. disfigurement. And, and it's an amazing moment. It's a wonderful moment because this yeah. is so sexy, so sexy. These beautiful, they're in lingerie. And then suddenly she turns her face and we see this horrible reality of life. And it was because we were watching something beautiful and all of a sudden this it incites this revulsion. Mm-hmm. You know, Except in him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, once again, point. that he is not as revolted. He's yeah. fascinated. He's absolutely fascinated by this. He said you needn't photograph my face. I want Maybe you can fix my bruises too. I want What about the customers? Don't be shy. Of me it's my first time too. Yours? In front of eyes, like eyes as full of. I would also, you know, we're very lucky that we have the Harvard Film Archive. They showed a 35 millimeter print of Peeping Tom a couple of weeks ago, and it was uh, it was terrific to see that. Uh, David, you were there. No, no I didn't go did there go? that night. You went there. Oh, oh, I thought uh, I thought you had gone. No, no, I wanted to, but I couldn't. But uh, but we saw it a couple of days later. Um, David and JP host a screening salon uh, here in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, and we went over to uh, we watched the film that that night and discussed it at length. Now. The- one of the questions that you asked earlier about, you know, is there that issue, say, at the beginning, you know, with the, can he, can he take over the set that way? Yeah. And you answered it, fine. But there are places in the film where there's a little bit of willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Uh, and one of them is the accent of our hero. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His father's English and he's German. How did that happen? Well, yeah. I think this is this is a question of casting, and, and his, which and his, I, I have some <laughs> questions about, too. And his name is Mark Lewis. Yes, you know, and yeah. uh, but he's you know definitely he's a German actor. There's no doubt about it. Mm. And he was not the original choice for this. That there were two other. Let's see, the two two Dirk, actors. Uh, Dirk 
Dirk Bogart, Bogart, I believe, was oh, the right. original, said, yeah. and he pulled out. And Lawrence Harvey, you said, was the other Lawrence Harvey yeah. had a problem, yeah. and they ended up with um, Carl Bam. Bam, whatever. Hmm. Boom. Boom. Yeah, no, I, there's sort of always going to be a question about the cast, his casting as to why that choice for this film. Maybe because he's, uh, you know, he, he's an outsider. He doesn't fit in. You know, maybe, maybe it was that. Well, but as somebody mentioned, he, I mean, there is a, which I disagree with, there is an element of Peter, the Peter Laurie-ish character mm-hmm. to him. Um, well, who disagrees with that? I think so. Well, no, no, but I, but I disagree that that would be that would be the bad reason for casting him. Oh. But I understand that it could have been a reason for casting him. Well, it's one of these accidents that the film has because, to a certain extent, the Peter Laurie character in M uh, can't help what he does, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a certain way that in in our character here he's going to be doing this. But of course, it's a different psychological basis. And there's a uh, in 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 both films. Mm-hmm. But there's with the accent and the intonation that he has, whether it's just real or you know, by choice, I kept on thinking of Peter Laurie and M. And mm-hmm. again, he has to, he's compelled to kill, right? Yeah. And this man is too, and uh, that is that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And because here he's compelled to do it because of his own psychosis, because whatever we want to make of his relationship with his father, he's doing his father's work, right? Um, I assume he was relatively unknown at the time, so it was uh, um, there was no identification. The producers did want a star, though. Well, he was yeah. he was he was a known actor. Oh, yeah. This is hadn't he done? The, he was in American films too. Yeah, uh, here I think his name is K A R L. Right, and in a lot of films, his name it was C A R L. And actually, the the he actually has a longer first name that that nobody used that they only use in Germany. I think Anna Massey was an interesting choice because she's not classically beautiful. She's just, you know, unique looking, mm-hmm. you know? Well, she, she was a look that was coming in. I mean, this yeah. is the Rita Tushingham period will come shortly after this. This is the beginning. This is the sixties. Mm-hmm. So, well, David, thanks for uh, taking the time to discuss it. Thanks. Pleasure. It's a film worth discussing. Yeah. Thank you. And seeing, if you haven't seen it. Wow. Yeah, no, this is definitely a film to revisit, revisit and hang out and talk about it afterwards. <laughs> Just like this. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can visit us online at diabolique and there you can listen to all the prior episodes of the Diabolique webcast and the new and forthcoming episodes of Captive Eye. We're very much looking forward to bringing you some more great stuff. If you have any comments about Captive Eye, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. I'm Steve Head. This is Captive Eye.